when reading the Bible, a common mistake is to violate common sense. If you're reading a newspaper, and I'm sure you probably don't, but if you were reading a newspaper, common sense would tell you to read the sports section, the editorial, the weather, the news, the comics, obituary, differently. And you would know to read it according to its genre and not each part the same way. They're all different kinds of literature or writing in a single paper. If you read a genre out of context, you would misread it. So if the weather section says sunrise at 6.30 and you're not in a, a section talking about the science of the sun, you wouldn't think that the paper is ignorant that the sun doesn't move. You would know that they're speaking phenomenologically. This is how the sun appears to us on planet Earth. <clears throat> so it's accurate and easy to understand the truth of what they're saying when we say the sun is coming up. We know the sun doesn't move. If you're reading an article on the science of the sun, you would, you would not expect them to use sunrise, sunset. If you're reading a sports story, the writer may talk about a sudden death ending, and you, may, you, you wouldn't be horrified and think that there was an on-field catastrophe where all the players died. The figure of speech indicates something real that happened. It was a close game. And the Bible has historical narrative, poetry, wisdom, literature, Wisdom literature, it has laws, gospel, parables, letters, simile, metaphor. God didn't just give us <clears throat> God's rules, one to 10,000. He gave us the Bible, or more literally the, the Biblios, the books, and it has the full range of human experience in multiple genre or types of writings. And the Bible is true in all that it says, but historical narrative is not read or understood the same way as poetry or Proverbs. David's poems tell us the truth. They're God's word, but they do so in poetic fashion. Moses' historical narrative tell us the truth, as do the Gospels. And the purpose of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is to reveal Jesus. It's remarkable how a book written over millennia by over 40 people on multiple continents is able to do this. And this brings us to the second common mistake, and that is to read the Bible as just another book. It is the Word of God. And God speaks to us in and through the Bible. God used normal humans to write it, but all Scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed. And Satan understands the Bible in some ways better than we do. He's a super intelligent being. But Satan, in another sense, has no understanding of the Bible at all. He's not born again. He doesn't submit to God. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. In the same way, you could go up against a non-believing scholar who knows Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and he may beat you in an argument about the Bible, but he's not going to be changed by it or believe in Christ, and therefore he's going to completely fail to understand it really. So the Bible's God's word to us, so we must read it using common sense. You can't go into some weird, super spiritual way of reading it that takes you out of its normal context, or you'll miss the truth. At the same time, you have to read it as a spirit-filled follower of Jesus, not just as another book. So read, study, hear, discuss the Bible this year. Don't stop doing it because it's hard or boring or you're too busy. You just can't become too bored or too busy to do what's essential to do. It's essential that we are changed by the Word of God. Now, if what you've done so far hasn't worked or stopped working, meaning you stopped doing it, do something different. The best plan is always the one you're going to actually do. But whatever you plan to do, do the plan, and then don't measure as to whether the plan is working moment by moment. I didn't feel it this morning. I'm not changing this week. Just be faithful. When it comes to reading the Bible, there are better and worse ways of doing it, but the most important thing is to do it. Just be faithful over time, and you will experience change. Which brings me to my main point for today, and really for the next two weeks after today. Don't try to change the world, just be faithful. 
International House of Prayer founder Mike Bickle is sadly another very public pastor who's been very publicly disgraced. And I'm not going to pile on, but his life and fall are instructive. He claimed that God had told him he would change the understanding and expression of Christianity in a single generation. Think about that for a minute. Now, if God did tell you that, which, by the way, he's not going to, keep it to yourself and don't try to be impressive. Just go be faithful. I think a better model is Mary, who actually did hear from God and gave birth to the Savior. And Luke says she pondered it in her heart. She didn't go on a book tour. So Bickle would make other similar grandiose claims over the years. And then he would use these kinds of prophetic statements to influence young women in some terrible and self-serving ways. To be told by a charismatic man claiming to speak for God that you're special and you're going to change the world with him can be very confusing. It's manipulative. It's evil. Because people want to be special, and to be told you're special by God, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And you can say, well, Terry, we are special, and I get what you're saying. God loves each of us. God has the capacity to pay focused attention to billions of people. What that means is God is special, not that we are. We're just one of billions. And we're to delight in the fact that he loves us, not in some special plan he has for me that he has for no other human. In Luke 9, the disciples were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Can you imagine? I mean, the Lord is right there. A little later, James and John asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to destroy a Samaritan village. They're asking the Lord who came to serve, sacrifice, and die if he wants them to bring down lightning bolts. And Jesus said, no. He rebuked them. In the next chapter, the Lord sent out 72 who were following him. And this number, as you read the gospel, gets smaller and smaller as he gets closer to the cross. There's no fun in the cross. And the 72 returned from their mission trip with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Yeah, great, the Lord said. I've given you power and authority over the enemy. Don't get excited about that. Get excited that your names are written in heaven. So not the powerful things you do in my name, but the fact that I know your name. To change the world, to be unusual, to be extraordinary, to be amazing, that's what it's all about. But is it? Last week, Christy and I drove through a small town in Missouri, literally a couple of hundred people in this town, And I saw a sign at a little bitty church, World Outreach Center. And I thought, is that good or is that bad? The answer is it depends. What do they mean? Do they mean we're changing the world right here in this tiny, not even on the interstate town, one life at a time? Do they mean we're being faithful here? Do they mean, hey, we're not just a small church. We look like it. We're not. We're the World Outreach Center. We're going to be famous. We've got a miracle a minute. I don't know the answer to the question, what do they mean by that? I didn't stop and ask them. I do know the answer to the question, how has the world changed? And the answer is, that's not your concern. It's certainly not your life goal. Be faithful is your concern, and that's your stewardship. It's required those who have been given a stewardship be found faithful. And by the way, the world's always changed for the better is by plain old faithfulness. By and large, the people who've really made it their life goal to change the world have done so in ways that were negative. An oft-quoted or claimed verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And I've had people read that and go, I claim that verse. God's going to prosper me. In Jeremiah 33, 3, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you don't know. Yeah, I want that one too. Tell me all the great things you're going to do in and through my life. But I've never heard the context claimed as a promise from God. The context is the Babylonians are going to overrun your country. You're going to lose the war. You're going to be hauled off as POWs. Some of you are going to come back, but it's going to be 70 years. You're going to be old. 
Most of you are going to die in Babylon. So settle down, live faithful lives in captivity under the heel of a foreign power. That was the plans God had for them. Their hope was not going to be in victory, but in trusting God in defeat and exile. So I'm, I'm great if someone says, God, I claim the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, in my great suffering, even if I'm in exile with nothing, I will hope in you. My prosperity may be only you, but you are all that I need. So we're going to spend today and the following two weeks in the book of Daniel because it gives us a really helpful look at how to be faithful in a hostile culture. So here's our short series, Don't Try to Change the World. Today, be faithful in the small times. Next week, be faithful in the hard times. And then week three, be faithful in the waiting times. Let's do a quick backstory on Daniel. We talked about Jeremiah. He was Israelite priest in Jerusalem in the final days of the southern kingdom, Judah. And he told the people they would be destroyed by Babylon because of their sin and taken into exile. They had rejected God's law. They were mistreating the vulnerable. They'd even resorted to the vile practice of child sacrifice. And God was going to bring judgment from the north. Babylon was going to be his tool of judgment. Then God would judge Babylon by the Persians. And Jeremiah warned him over and over, and he was abused for it. They refused to believe him. God has firmly decided this is going to happen. They said, we don't want to hear that. The city of Jerusalem came under siege, was destroyed, the people taken to Babylon. And Daniel sat during this time of Jerusalem's fall to Nebuchadnezzar and the exile of the people to Babylon. Now what's interesting to me is when you mention Daniel to people, what tends to stand out is the spectacular and the futuristic. The spectacular. Daniel, oh yeah, blazing furnace, lion's den. Daniel, yeah, dreams of future kings and kingdoms, beasts, end times, all that cool stuff. But the purpose of Daniel was to inspire faithfulness in God's people in the midst of persecution by the kingdoms of men that had turned against God. It is the very opposite of chasing the spectacular or speculating on the future. Be faithful in the normal, the hard, and the waiting. Be faithful right here and now. Daniel was taken into exile when he was around 17. He was at least 82 when the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so we can read the book in a few minutes and think, wow, what, ste- what, what steps out, stands out to us, blazing furnace without even a smoky smell on your clothes, lion's den without a scratch, amazing dreams of the future. But most of Daniel's life was not wow. There's a lot of time when nothing spectacular was going on in those 65 plus years. In fact, if you're reading the book between chapter 4 with King Nebuchadnezzar and then a quick jump to chapter 5 with King Belshazzar and the fall of Babylon, there's just blank space. You go, what's happening in here? Well, Daniel was just being faithful. In fact, what was happening was Daniel was being forgotten. Nebuchadnezzar promoted Daniel over an entire province. Now his foolish son, Belshazzar, had to be told about this old guy named Daniel who had interpreted his dad's dreams. So you have to read the Bible and notice what's not there, partly to understand what is there. There's no miracle a minute. There's no Daniel's World Outreach Center. There's just years of faithfulness as God's plans unfolded and Daniel played his own role in those plans. Let me read some parts of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the king of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. There's a lot in that. I mean, it was a horrible time. People were starving and dying all because of their own sin. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. This will come back to play in in a week or so when we look at Belshazzar. 
Next, the king ordered that the best and brightest of Israel be trained in the language and the literature and culture of the Babylonians. And Daniel and his three friends were among those who were selected. <clears throat> so Daniel's being trained, and I'm just going to kind of work my way through this passage. I'm not going to read it all. And Daniel resolved to not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, but he asked the chief official, hey, can we have a different diet? And God had caused this official to have favor and sympathy for Daniel, but the guy still cared about his own neck. He said, look, I'm afraid the king, if, if I give you your own food and drink and you don't do well, the king's going to have my head. And Daniel said, well, just let me and my buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, let us have a test, a 10-day trial period, and see how it goes. After 10 days, they were healthier and better nourished than the other young men. So the guard took away the choice food, and everybody got Daniel's diet. Now, I'm sure that didn't go over well in the clubhouse. So to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So stop. <clears throat> what you find over and over in Daniel is God's grace, giving favor, giving ability, special abilities, and you find Daniel's grit, his hard choices. You find both of those. So at the end of all this time of training, they're presented to the king, and they were way, way, way smarter, better off, wiser than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And in verse 21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So that's, that's the Persian king who came in. So that's a time hack on when this is a whole kind of a story in a, in a capsule. So Daniel and his friends were faithful in small times in the midst of a culture that was hostile to God. Now, they were selected initially because they were without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, <clears throat> and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, God chose to make them physically and mentally who they were. This doesn't mean that their lives are explained by being purely natural talents. They weren't just, oh, they were savants. We can't relate to them. Their lives was all grace and all grit, just like yours. We looked at Peter earlier last later last year he said that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness because that's the grace now for this reason make every effort to add to your faith then he gives all these gritty choices we're to make it's always going to be grace and grit wisdom that Daniel had in scripture is a gift from God and it's also a moral of volitional choice people make so they'd receive God's grace and they'd exercise human grit. They applied effort and endurance to grow in wisdom. God gave it and they pursued it. That's always how it works. And now they're going to have to learn Babylonian culture, language, literature. This is going to be extremely hard. But they clearly applied themselves with great grit because they stood out. Don't miss that. They'd have to become experts in Babylonian magic, sorcery, astrology, and polytheism. They didn't buy into it, but they had to understand it. That was a part of being an advisor in that culture. So they had to have a strong, settled faith in God to be able to learn this culture without being overtaken by it. Now go back to verse 8. <clears throat> Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine. Daniel accepted a new name, a Babylonian name. He's called Belteshazzar. He accepts re-education in Babylonian culture, but he protests the food he's given. Why reject the diet and not the other things? It could be he was being offered meat that would violate the Jewish food laws. But in truth, the prophets, according to the prophets, all food in Babylon was going to be ritually unclean. I think there's probably a clue to what was going on in chapter 11, verse 26, where Daniel later writes that those who eat his rich, the king's rich food, his delicacies, will be his undoing. And it was more about heart allegiance. 
Sharing a meal for the Jew was to commit to friendship. There was some covenant significance in it. And the thing that Daniel rejected may not have been a ritual defilement, but a moral one. To accept the king's rich food was to commit an allegiance to the king. So Daniel would learn the king's culture. He would even rule over part of the king's kingdom. But as we'll see later, he would refuse to ever put the earthly king over the king of heaven and earth in his heart's allegiance. He was literally willing to die first. So Daniel had to learn, like we all do, to adjust to living in an environment that's sometimes hostile to our faith. Everyone who lives with these cross-cultural tensions know how difficult it is to sort through principles. But these were small times. These were times of study, lots of classroom, lots of preparation, days of figuring out what can I do, what can I not do to honor God in this time and place. And he could have just blown it all off and he would have had no influence. He could have bought it into all of it. He would have had no influence. He had to do the hard work to figure out how to be faithful. He had to seek to understand what part of Babylonian culture he could accept and what he had to reject. It was just not simple. It's not simple for us, is it? Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted with very much. Whoever is unfaithful with little will be unfaithful with much. So we can overlook the small times and the small tests, not realizing they are essential to the larger times and the larger tests that are yet to come. And I, want, and I would say to you, <clears throat> middle school, high school, even college and post-college age people, this, this is the time, there's always going to be tests all the way to the last minutes of your life. Ask my dad this, this summer. But this is a time of especially important small tests in faith and humility. And they can go by you because they're going to be small. They're going to look small. But it's really important you pay attention to them because they're setting you up for success later. You're training now for what's to come. So pay really careful attention, especially to your heart. Above all else, Proverbs says, guard it. So sometimes we'll reject parts of culture we're offended by, and that's okay. But then we'll accept parts of culture that offend God. And those parts often tend to be related to, to the, Lord, the Lordship in our hearts. Let's go to Romans 14, and we're going to see how it applies to our decision-making process regarding living faithfully in a sometimes hostile culture. So, Paul, so Daniel's writing in a time of Babylonian hostility. Paul's writing in a time of Roman hostility. Romans 14 is written after Christ has come. He's fulfilled the law. The ceremonial laws are no longer in effect. However, there were some new Christians, some Jewish converts to faith especially, who had conscience objections that wouldn't allow them to do what other Christians could in good conscience do. So let me work through this. I'm not going to read every, every verse, but if you haven't ever studied Romans 14, it's a really important chapter. He starts off with, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything. Another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not look down on the one who does not. The one who does not eat must not condemn the one who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? So Paul's addressing what he calls disputable matters. This means, since he's calling these disputable, it means there are some things that are not disputable. He's not saying, yeah, it's all up for debate. It's not. Sexual morality is not disputable. Lordship of Jesus is not disputable, but, but there are some things that people can legitimately have different convictions about. And he gives here the example of food or observance of certain days. He said one man considers a day more sacred than the other. The other man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Again, this is not about truth being subjective. <clears throat> Paul is not a, a your truth, my truth kind of guy. He knew there is only the truth. 
But he also knew that different people were at different stages of development. And even though God doesn't care if they ate certain foods or celebrated certain days, he cared most that their hearts were fully his. And he also cared that people don't judge one another. And that's, part, that's what he's always addressing in the church. He really cares about people looking like they belong to Jesus and loving one another like that. So the person who doesn't think they have freedoms aren't judging those who do, and the people who have freedoms aren't, aren't failing to pay attention to what their freedoms are doing to those who are struggling. So he said, stop, verse 13, stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind and not put a stumbling block in your brother's way. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, and 10, Paul talks in detail about how Christians are to watch out, more mature Christians are to watch out for new believers and non-believers and not let their mature freedoms cause others to stumble. This doesn't mean we're to let the opinions of others shape our choices. It simply means that we're supposed to be careful and loving in how we use our freedom, that we don't get to be judgmental, either as the one who thinks they have certain limits and are convinced this is from God, or the one who believes they have certain freedoms. Verse, 9, verse, verse 19, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. And then verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. In other words, don't become, evan- don't become an evangelist for your own personal convictions. Just hold to them. And in verse 23, the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. That's the heart issue here. So key principles for understanding how do we operate as believers in a hostile culture, don't judge undisputable matters. There are disputable matters, but also there are non-disputable matters, and we all hold to those. Form your own convictions about them. You have to make choices about these, but don't try to compel others to join you. And then live your convictions faithfully. God's after your heart. Paul said, I'm convinced no food is unclean in verse 14. In verse 23, he said, but if you have doubts, don't eat, because that which is not of faith full-hearted allegiance to God, is sin. Again, this doesn't mean truth and sin are relative. Paul's addressing very specific practical issues here. Things are not clearly sin, but people have conscious objections to. I've used this illustration before, but it really helps in looking at Romans 14. Years ago, I read a story about a man who had become addicted to the sport of baseball. It, it ruled his life. He became a follower of Christ, and a part of that renew this that new lordship of jesus was he had to give up baseball as an idol then he started getting around christians who would watch and talk about baseball and he was trying to understand what's going on are they in sin by watching baseball and i said yeah of course they're in sin baseball is a terrible sport no (laughs) no they weren't in sin by watching baseball and then well then they're watching baseball and they're mature christians should i watch baseball then no not until you can do so with a free heart in Romans, written to people living, trying to live faithfully in a hostile Roman Empire, what does it look like to please God? Daniel's written to people living in hostile Babylonian Empire, how do we live faithfully? And both were written for us living in our sometimes hostile American Empire, how do we live faithfully? And what we learn in Scripture is that God is very concerned with our hearts. Where does our true allegiance lie? It's never going to be easy to know what we can and can't participate in. And there's going to be differences in the body of Christ over what we can and can't. It's difficult to know what we allow our kids to do or not do. And all the teenagers are going, yeah, you need to help my parents figure that out. <laughs> They're trying. They're trying really hard. It's hard. We have to make choices. And as believers, we're all going to make some of the same choices to be faithful. So there's going to be no diversity on who is, who is Lord. Jesus is Lord. 
There's going to be no diversity on whether we should put the interests of others ahead of our own. We should do that. There should be no diversity on whether we're to live moral and ethical lives. There's going to be diversity, diversity on how we educate our, ch- our kids, how we spend our time, and other decisions we make. And we're to trust each other in these things and not pass judgment. And the foundation, again, is a surrendered heart to Christ as king. We don't say to Jesus, tell me what you want and I'll see if I can pull that off. We say, you're the Lord. When I know what you want, I'm going to do it. So where to begin? Be faithful in the small times. It's largely hubris to want to change the world. It's not always bad as an attitude, but it's often bad in application because often the way the world is actually changed is skipped by those who want to change the world. So here's how the world has changed. Serve, sacrifice, be faithful, be humble, endure, put others first, wash the feet of others. You know, all the stuff Jesus did, the guy actually did change the world. So let's learn from Daniel about what it means to be faithful in small times. Daniel, again, went into exile around age 17 until he was at least 82. He was faithful under the Babylonian king. Then he served the Persian king with distinction. He lived this life of grace, God's favor, and grit, full effort. That's really key for us to pay attention to. And we're going to balance and embrace both sides of that equation ourselves if we want to live effectively in this culture. We can't throw up our hands in either apathy or anger at the opposition or trouble that's going to come as we seek to be faithful. It's going to happen. Both anger and apathy are bad reflexes. Apathy, whatever, it's just not worth the fight. It's too confusing. Christians don't agree. The world's hostile. Whatever, it's not worth the fight. Anger is, whatever it is, I'm going to fight. Bring it on. And what we want to do is pursue faith-empowered faithfulness. Anger and apathy are both reactive. Faithfulness is always proactive. I'm not saying you can't get angry. But I'm saying acting on anger is reactive. Faithfulness is what, what is what does it look like for me to honor God right here? And it's going to look like the next small thing in front of you, not trying to do something spectacular. <clears throat> Bickle thought the world was going to be tra- changed through 24-hour prayer and worship for years. It seems like, I don't know, but from what I'm reading, it seems like it was a desire for the spectacular. And many who participated over the years were well-meaning, but what it did was produce... Loads of lazy young people, undeveloped young people. Scripturally, what they should have been doing is learning to bear the yoke when they're young. So, yeah, by all means, pray. By all means, worship. Do it as you dig a ditch or fix a computer or serve food. The greatest apologist for our generation, they said, Ravi Zacharias, one of the greatest moral failures. He had a golden tongue and a great mind, and he lived far from God, as it turns out. Better if he had not written books. Better if he'd just been found faithful. I've heard of people who want to write the greatest book to change the world. It's already been written. Just go read it. Stop trying to change the world. Be faithful. See where God takes you in that journey. Love your kids. Love somebody else's kids. Go to work. Share the gospel. Plant a garden if that's what faithfulness looks like today. I doubt faithfulness looks like planting a garden today. But when spring arrives... In the meantime, during these short, dark days of winter, be faithful now. I used to wish that January, February, and March were not on the calendar. Let's just go from Christmas straight to Easter. And I have learned to enjoy these days. And here's how I've learned to en- enjoy them. I've, chose, I've chosen to. I've trained my mind to. And I have more time inside. I have more time with people, more time to be still, more time to read and pray. We can train ourselves, if we will, to learn to be faithful in the little 
and to even enjoy it. Carmen Pate, an old saint in our church, told me yesterday as I sat with him and Norma that aside from all the physical pain, and they have a lot, he said, these are the best years of our lives. And he said, I've learned to be grateful for the small. Very powerful. And he and Norma have been through enormous pain, and they enjoy each other a lot. He said, we love our twilight years, and they are exactly that. But what comes after twilight, the, the dawn, the resurrection is coming for him. So even during these short winter days that many people hate <clears throat> and just try to get through, we can learn how to be faithful in the small. Don't worry about change in the world. Humans can't carry that burden. Just be faithful. Now, it could be someone in this room is going to become famous, hopefully not infamous, but somebody may become famous and very influential someday. And if that's you, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, if that's you, that's a very difficult calling. I don't envy that. But I'll tell you this, if that is you, in the end, if the Lord tarries, even if you're famous for a time, you're going to be dead and forgotten by everyone left on the earth. And then all that will matter is that God knows your name because no one here is going to care. In the end, God knowing your name will matter. That's all that really matters now. Be faithful in the small things. That brings God glory and joy. And it is, in fact, exactly what he wants from each of us. Let's pray together. We give you a chance to talk to God. <clears throat> Maybe you hate these winter months. Maybe you hate this time of life. Maybe you're struggling with being faithful during this time of testing and trials. Whatever it is, ask God to help you embrace faithfulness right now.